Well, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. And if you want to use the Pew Bible, that'll be on page 801. So 801 in the Pew Bible, and we're going to be looking at Matthew 2, 10 through 16. And while you're flipping there, uh, this passage is especially hard for two reasons. One is just some of the, the Hebrew here is difficult to translate. And then the other is because of the topic. Malachi in many ways has been chipping away at the people almost like he's a sculptor. And he's chipping away at their sin. He's calling them out on some difficult things. And so um, today we're going to see how Malachi addresses marriage. And this text will not answer all of your questions. I have no doubts it won't. It may even, in fact, bring up more questions in your mind. If I were to try to answer all of your questions, it would take months, perhaps even years, of studying and looking at God's Word. I'm not going to use up all that time today. But if you have questions after the service, please feel free to reach out to one of the elders. We would love to be able to talk with you more um, about this and about questions you may have. And so I want to give us a refresher. Since it's been a few months since we've been in Malachi, where we're at, where uh, the people Malachi is addressing. And so Judah has been in exile. They've come back to Jerusalem. The temple's been rebuilt. The city's been rebuilt. And so in many ways, there's this, this life back to normal. And with that, there's also been some leniency, some laxity in worshiping and following God rightly. And so it's to this matter that Malachi is addressing the people. And in chapters 1 and the first part of 2, he's actually pretty much addressed everything to the priests because they failed to teach God's word rightly and they've also failed to lead God's people to worship him rightly. And now he shifts his gaze from a specific set of people, the priests, to now addressing all the people of Judah. And we're going to see how he does this. And even just thinking about what he's already addressed, the, the unfaithful teaching of God's word and not faithfully leading the people to worship God rightly, it naturally flows into what he's talking about today. And how discord and disunity, dysfunction makes its way into personal relationships. So if you would, look with me at Malachi chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. 
to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So Malachi opens this section in verse 10 and he reminds them, he says, you are of, of one God, of one father. You are one family. Yet dysfunction is wreaking havoc among you in your relationships. And so we see this, this general introduction verse, in verse 10 to, to the discord that's going on between the people. And we'll see in just a minute that verses 11 through 12, Malachi tells them, do not break covenant by marrying unbelievers. And then he also says in verses 13 through 16, do not break covenant by divorce. And so I think it's true. Malachi is correcting their understanding of marriage because of their selfishness and their low view of marriage. And John Piper says in his book, This Momentary, this momentary Marriage, he says, there never has been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. The chasm between the biblical vision of marriage and the common human vision is now and always has been gargantuan. There's never been a period in history when the common view of marriage is high enough. It's never measured up to God's view of marriage. And so I hope that today, as we look at Malachi, we get to see God's view of marriage that it might exalt our view of marriage. And with that, we need to understand what a, co a covenant is and a contract. Because we see over and over this idea of covenant repeating. So a contract is when, uh, even in business terms, a very simple contract, uh, two people come together or companies come together and say, we'll provide these services for you and you provide us with money usually, right? And if one person doesn't fulfill the contract, then you can break it off. And that's a, a contract in its very simple form. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. So it's two people coming together. They're binding themselves together in an agreement that should not ever be dissolved. Even when sin enters into that relationship, it is not to be dissolved. And so that's why Malachi is hitting at this. Do not break covenant. In verses 11 and 12, he says, do not break covenant by marrying an unbeliever. So let's look at that. Read with me again verse 11. Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. So he starts out with what they did, right? He says, you've married this daughter of a foreign God. And how that is an offense to the Lord. It says that 
You, by doing this, profane the sanctuary of the Lord, or, or quite literally, you profane the holiness or the character of God when you marry daughters of foreign gods. And then the very beginning of that verse, it says, when you do this, it exhibits your heart. It shows your heart. It is faithlessness. So when you marry daughters of a foreign god, it's an issue of the heart. Right? We see this over and over and over. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, Exodus 34 says, Take care, or you could even read with that, Be on guard, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest, you become ins- lest it become a snare in your midst. And right after that, God gives them two things to do. The first, break down all the altars of foreign gods. And the second, he says in verse 16 of chapter 34, do not take the daughters, their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after other gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You see the same thing in Deuteronomy 7, 4, the same thing when Joshua and Joshua 23 addresses the nation. And then we also get to 1 Kings 11, right? The most wise man in all the earth, King Solomon. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love and his wives turned away his heart and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. So intermarrying, a a believer marrying an unbeliever, it's at the root, it's a heart issue exhibited as you marry an unbeliever. It is the same as trading a relationship with God to a relationship with the world. And we see this in the life of Mark Twain and Olivia Langdon. Olivia was born and raised in a Christian home by devout Christian parents. She even professed faith in Christ. But when Twain, her suitor, came proposing, she accepted. And if you don't know much about Mark Twain, he is is a critic of religion. And Olivia answered his proposal with acceptance. And there's no doubt just knowing Uh, what historians have said about their marriage and their life, that she had intents of converting him, bringing him to Christ. Because Twain would even, early on in their marriage, he was a part of family worship. When the Bible was read, when prayers were said, he was there. He listened. He was sympathetic. But over time, he developed a distaste for this worship. And he told his wife, you may keep this if you want, but I must ask you, excuse me from it. It is making me a hypocrite. I don't believe in the Bible. It contradicts my reason. I can't sit here and listen to it, letting you believe that I regard it, as you do, in the light of the gospel of the word of God. That would be bad enough, right? For a spouse who has grand hopes and desires with all her heart for her husband to love Christ. That would be hard enough. But to make it worse, 
Olivia progressed. She went from doubting to the death of her religion. She even confessed to her sister one time. She said, my orthodox views have, have gone away. And I even doubt that there's even a personal God. And years later, in a time of bereavement, Twain tried to strengthen and encourage his wife with these words. He said, Livy, if it comforts you, lean on the Christian faith. Then do so. And she replied back, I can't. I haven't any. So the issue here is, is he's turned her heart away from God. And every time in the Old Testament, the Bible tells, don't marry the foreign woman. It's not an, it's not an interracial issue. It has nothing to do with interracial marriages. It has everything to do with those who don't believe in Christ turning your heart away from God. And so Christian, please don't fool yourself. Marrying a non-believer is like setting a trap for your faith. A trap that will probably, most likely, slowly lead you away from trusting in your God. And then if that's not enough, Paul even heightens it even more. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So the Old Testament says, don't marry unbelievers because they may draw your heart away from God. And Paul heightens it even more by saying, you, the temple of the living God, who've been made righteous through Christ, don't wed yourselves with unrighteousness. It's like trying to mix oil and water. It doesn't work. It's profaning this covenant. And verse 12 even tells us there that there are disastrous consequences when we reject God's rule for our life in this area. It says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. That is, anyone who intermarries. So when you marry an unbeliever, it is as if you are cutting yourself off from this intimate bond with God. And I think even sometimes we try to rationalize it, right? We say, well, I, I love them. Or another one is, well, they promise to come to church with me. Or even another one, sometimes you might hear, well, I'm evangelating, right? They want to actually say that. But if, if you, okay, nobody laughed except maybe one. So you may not be familiar. Evangelating might be a youth term, okay? So evangelism via dating, right? Evangelating. So the idea is I'm going to date them. I might even be the only Christian in their life. And so I want to live Christ before them. Sounds good, right? But it's not. Because don't forget, they may turn your heart from the living God. And then perhaps another one is, well, I try to rationalize it or people try to rationalize. It. I think when they say, well, I've, prayed about it, and even God's given me a peace. Well, 
I want to wholeheartedly tell you that could never be. Because God will never give you a peace about something that is against what he's already told us. So if you have a peace, it's just because you've pacified your own conscience, not because God has said it is okay. But I also want to make sure that we're, we're here understanding and, and even trying to apply this rightly. I want you to know that God is not saying if you are in a marriage currently to an unbeliever that you should leave. First Peter tells us, in fact, the exact opposite. It says that you should stay in your marriage. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if someone does not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their lives. So if you find yourself in a marriage currently where your spouse is not a believer, I want to encourage you, stay in the marriage. Be faithful to your spouse. Live like Christ that they may be won by your life. But what it is saying, so that was what it's not saying. What it is saying is, if you're not currently in a marriage, listen clearly. So children, if you're in here or youth or college students, if in your future you have the chance for marriage, don't marry an unbeliever. Don't even get close to it. Don't even consider dating and giving your heart in any way to an unbeliever. It's flirting with danger. It's flirting with evil. And you have no idea how far sin can take you on the road and destroy your life. John Piper says something very similar. Or Sorry, let me back up just a second. Parents, you may hesitate if your child brings home someone of a different race and introduces you to them as boyfriend or girlfriend. But you wouldn't be quite as hesitant if they bring home someone of the same color that isn't a believer. I think when we do this, we're ignoring what God has for us in his word. Because we're looking at the externals, about the, the similarities we can see with our eyes. And instead of looking at the heart and the foundation for which a strong marriage is built, and that is the solid rock of Christ alone. John Piper, he writes, in 1967 at Urbana Missions Conference, Warren Webster, a former missionary to Pakistan, he answers this question that someone asked him. What if your daughter falls in love with a Pakistani while you're on the mission field and wants to marry him? And with great forcefulness, Webster said, the Bible would say, better a Christian Pakistani than a godless white American. What could lead someone to say that? What could lead you as a parent to echo the same thing in your heart that says, better a Christian Pakistani than a godless white American? It's because you know there's something way more to marriage than just the externals, just the, the emotional love. Marriage is meant to make you 
like Christ. It's meant to make your children like Christ. And so to have the solid rock foundation of two people coming together in Christ, living life together, is a far more firm foundation than two white people or two black people marrying one another that don't have the foundation of Christ. And to the married, when's the last time you thanked God for giving you a believing spouse? When's the last time you intentionally thanked God for giving you a spouse that points you to Jesus, who helps your holiness? If you are married, I'm going to give you a chance later on to display that with your mouth. So hold on. And also pray that your marriage would reflect Christ in the church more faithfully. So when the people of God break covenant by marrying unbelievers, we should not be surprised that, there, that there's this breaking of covenant with one another. And we see exactly that in verses 13 through 16, that Malachi says we should not break covenant by divorce. Read with me again verses 13 through 16. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because no, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So Malachi begins this, this paragraph. He says, the second thing you do, and then it's like a pause. And he says, the second thing that you do is actually hindering your worship. The thing that you do keeps God from accepting your worship. And then notice what their response is, right? They're sorrowful, not for their sin, but they're sorrowful because God doesn't receive their offering. And then to make matters worse, to throw some more wood on the fire, they say, well, why does he not accept our offering? Right? As if they don't know. And so I'm thinking, man, it would be better for you to have kept your mouth shut and just listened more. But instead they say, well, why not? And Malachi goes on to say, it's because you're breaking covenant by divorcing your wife. And so marriage, we see here, is it's a covenant. It's, not, it's a covenant that's rooted not in the sand of emotional satisfaction, but rooted in the rock of covenant commitment. So marriage is a covenant. It's got a vertical component with God, right? Verse 14 says, the Lord was witness. And verse 15 says it's that he has given a portion of the Spirit in their union. So your marriage 
has a vertical component to it. God is there. So when you and your spouse have come together, God was there. He even gave you a portion of his spirit as you became one. But then we also know a covenant is this, it's, it's this horizontal relationship too. It's with a spouse, with your husband or your wife. Right? Verse 14 says, she is your wife by covenant and she's your companion. So this horizontal relationship, it is supposed to be one of companionship. A husband and wife living life together, growing together in Christ. And this covenant is until death do you part. So when you break faith with a spouse, it is at the same time breaking faith with God. And it's for this reason that God says in verse 16 that he hates divorce. And this is one of those difficulties in, tr in translation. The ESV here says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, right? Does not love, think equals hate. But all other translations that I, I looked at, like uh, the NIV, the uh, New American Standard, or even the King James, they all translate this part as, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. So God hates divorce because it's a husband and wife not keeping faith, not keeping covenant with one another. But I think God also hates divorce because it's harmful. It's harmful to those who have come together. Right, verse 15, it says, Did he not make them one? That is, did not God make the two one? So God hates divorce because it's harmful to the spouses involved when they divorce. It is, you are one and it's like you're ripping your own flesh in half when you divorce. But divorce is also hated by God because it's harmful to children. Even the American Psychological Association would say this, it says this on their website. Marriage and divorce are both common experiences. Healthy marriages are good for couples' mental and physical health. They are also good for children. Growing up in a happy home protects children from mental, physical, educational, and social problems. And Jessica and I right now are going through a home study so that we can pursue adoption. And one of the main things they're looking at when they visit in this home study is how stable is your home? What's the husband and the wife's relationship like? How do you, they even ask you, what do you do when you argue? How do you handle it? They want to they see, is the husband and wife, are they handling discord and difficulties in their marriage in a healthy way that is not going to lead to divorce and a separation and tearing part of a family? But it's also harmful to society. Right? Those who, who divorce, it breaks trust and even builds up in the heart of those walls of distrust. And that divorce even harms society because it changes the way the kids in the marriage view marriage. Which then in turn, if they get married, affects their children. But perhaps... Divorce is most hated by God 
because it proclaims a lie about God. To rightly understand marriage, we have to know that marriage illustrates the most blessed spiritual union that any of us could ever hope for. That is Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. And so for us to say that divorce is okay is to proclaim a lie about Christ that he can and might divorce his bride. But let me tell you, Christ will never, never divorce his bride. So you can rest assured that Christ will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And husbands, I want to encourage us even now, love the wife of your youth. That she would never even question your faithfulness to her. And perhaps another reason God hates divorce is because it cuts against the purposes of marriage. One of the purposes we see in this passage is that marriage is supposed to produce godly offspring. Verse 15 says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the, the one God seeking? Right? So that should ring alarm bells in our ears. What was God intending through marriage? The very next sentence answers this question. God was seeking godly offspring. Pastor Stephen wanted me to make sure I explicitly told you offspring here in the Hebrew is plural. Offsprings, right? So if you pursue marriage, know God wants you to have children. More than one, all right? I'm not keeping track, but I think he's uh, around seven or eight. But this also ought to produce alarm bells in our ears, reminding us back of Genesis chapter one. Husband and wife, Adam and Eve brought together. We even looked at this in Sunday school this morning with the youth. What's the intent? Multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with children and also godly children, godly offspring. So parents, there is a direct mandate to you. Stay married that you might be making disciples in your marriage. But then also God hates divorce because it cuts against another purpose of marriage, which is to make you more like Jesus. The NIV, NIV translates verse 16 by saying, I hate divorce, says the Lord. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment. Marriage is intended to make you like Jesus. But, put, but divorce, it says, God says here, that it's like clothing yourself with violence. And we know from the New Testament, you who are in Christ are supposed to put off the old, put on Christ. So clothe yourself with Christ that you might hate divorce as well. And I think Disney movies might be ruining generations of children. Just take, for example, Cinderella and Shrek, right? Both of those movies end with the two couples going off in a carriage, and what's it say right after that? They lived happily ever after, as if marriage were perfect and there was never any discord or difficulty. And so even as 
little children, you think, man, marriage is awesome. And let me tell you, marriage is awesome. But it is not without difficulty and great striving to remain one. And it's not without great difficulty that you must guard your heart. We see that at the, at the end of verse 16. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Guard yourselves. It's a, a proactive working against anything at all that may lead you to divorce. It's a proactive fighting against anything that might draw your heart and your affections away from your spouse and to someone else. Some of us even may be here today with discord and strife with the person you're sitting next to. Right? Marriage is not always perfect. Some of you in your heart have been trying to worship God today, all the while thinking, man, that fight this week is still lingering in my heart. It's still brewing. Maybe you still have bitterness in your heart and frustration with your spouse. Maybe even at moments you feel like your spouse is your enemy. Let me remind you, if you're in Christ, you once were someone else's enemy. You once were an enemy of God. But in his great love and compassion, he said, I'm going to seek you out and I'm going to buy you with the blood of my son that you might no longer be an enemy, but be reconciled to me. That's the picture we have in marriage. So God absorbed the wrath that you deserved through his son, will you not also absorb the sin and the offense that you feel when you've been sinned against by your spouse? Will you forgive today? And I told you earlier in the sermon I was going to give you a chance, right? Here it is. It might seem a little cheesy, and I'm okay with being cheesy. I think it'll be for your good. Um, Kids, you might even think this is cheesy for your parents to do, but I would encourage you kids to, to, to watch your parents. So parents, if you would even do me now a favor, quit looking at me, look at your spouse, and I want to give you a chance to very quickly renew your vows to your spouse. If you'd repeat after me. I promise to be your companion. And I will love and care for you until death do us part. Thank you. Husbands, I hope as you looked at your wives in the eyes that it endeared your hearts to her. And wives, as your husband spoke those words to you, that it refreshed a great affection in your heart for your husband. That's the spouse of your youth. Stay with them. Don't let anything tear your heart from them. But then also, if individual marriages display this covenant relationship between Christ and the church, we must also realize that, that marital faithfulness is tied to the covenant faithfulness with God and that we as a church must help marriages thrive. 
Part of that's happening today as you receive God's word. Pastor Stephen and I want to teach God's faith, word faithfully to you every single time we're here. Which means we want to preach God's word that it might strengthen your faith, but also strengthen your marriage. That you might display Christ faithfully. But also, because marital faithfulness is tied to covenant keeping with God, we must take seriously marriages that are dissolving that may be crumbling even before us. My prayer this week is that we would be a church that gets in the trenches and gets messy with one another. That we wouldn't be afraid to say, I'm struggling. I think one of the best ways you can do that is by joining a community group. Get involved in a small community of people that knows one another that knows the depths of our hearts together, that we might even be able to confess, my marriage is struggling. We're in a hard season right now. I need your prayer. I need your love. We need one another. But also I hope that you will even take opportunity to seek out the help of the elders. What I'm telling you is seek out help from somebody. Don't sit in silence. Don't sit thinking this may go away. Be proactive in fighting against the temptation and bitterness that may come up in your heart. So there's been a lot of rules. These rules are given to us by a good God, intended for our good. God telling you and I not to divorce our spouses is not, to, is not meant to squelch fun and good in our lives. It's actually meant to bring about good. It's meant to bring about the strengthening of your faith. And so when marriage is difficult, remember God wants to use this to refine me closer and closer to his image. I would encourage you um, as a family, perhaps even this afternoon, read Ephesians 5. Probably one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Because in there you see husband-wife relationship directly tied to Christ and the church. And it gives some very easy, practical takeaway steps that you can do to pursue this marriage that God desires. So I want to encourage you, for your own good... Stay in your marriage. For your joy, fight for a strong, Christ-centered marriage. It's for your good. And I want to close today with Exodus 34. I know some of you have been through the trenches. Perhaps you've either grown up in a home with a marriage that has dissolved Perhaps you were in a marriage that has ended in divorce. God loves you. I want to read this to you. It's far better than anything I could tell you. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is your God, merciful and gracious, 
What more could you want from your creator than for him to be merciful and gracious to you? So if your heart aches because it's your marriage has ended in divorce, know that your God is merciful. He's gracious. He wants you to come to the foot of the cross, repenting, trusting in his good work in you, and knowing and wholeheartedly believing, not just with your head, but believing that he offers forgiveness. Seek him out and the grace he offers. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for today. Your word, even when there are difficult passages that we must come across, it offers a great hope. Not a hope in escaping Uh, what you would have for us, but a great hope in that you are a great God who wants our good. You're a God who wants us to stay in marriage because it proclaims the glories offered in Christ to all who would bow a knee and submit to King Jesus. We thank you for this. We thank you that you have also warned us to keep us from years and perhaps a a lifetime of heartache by telling us not to enter into marriage with someone who does not love you. Would you be with us today as we go away from here that that we might receive your word as coming from a father who is abundant, with mercy and grace and with love. We thank you for who you are. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.